Welcome to the Todd DeVolt Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Uh, good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this fine world. And I'm, I'm super excited, kind of disappointed about the conversation in a sense, but super excited to have uh, David with me. David and I met back at the national or the EMI uh, at the Executive Academy where he was running the training program over there. Uh, very, very uh, well thought out person. So this conversation today is going to be great. So David, welcome to the show. Hey, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. I know we've talked about this for a while, so I'm glad we could finally get together. Absolutely. So when when we met, got shoot three years ago now, I think it is maybe four. Um, we you know you're discussing the idea of of doing this uh, active shooter uh, work that you've been doing, and you've really put a lot of time and effort into it. And unfortunately, uh, I say this unfortunately, there's a lot of data for you to uh, to scrub and and do work with. And uh, so t- let's talk about that just for a second, and then we'll get into just some of the train issues that we we're talking about before. Yeah. So since the shooting at Parkland, I've been working on a project called the K through 12 school shooting database, and it's hosted by the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. And this was a project that started after Parkland to better understand school shootings. Uh, We were in class when that shooting occurred, looking at at emerging homeland security issues, and we wanted to, to really better understand the landscape and history of school shootings. And there wasn't a lot of information that was available. So the project started as a Google sheet, just pulling together um, as many links to different shootings that had occurred. Um, And then we started coding them for different variables. Where in the school did it happen? What time? Um, Who was the shooter? How many victims? What types of injuries did they have? Um, As many different variables as we could think of. It kind of grew and grew um, into really a, a database project. And then um, in the fall of 2018, it was launched and went public. And it's just been a, a project that I've been, t- been maintaining for the last four years. And then really the, the shooting at, at Uvalde um, a month ago now really kind of brought it full circle. Um, it was a project that started you know, out of a event that you know, grabbed the national attention with Parkland. We've learned a lot about school shootings since then. And then we were really right back to a very similar situation uh, just a month ago. So I know we talk a lot about prevention and preparedness when it comes to school shootings. And I had a conversation um, just the other day. We had a webinar for Titan HST um, regarding um, using best communications and, and notification systems um, during uh not just during the, the, the response, but during the prevention and planning, uh, taking a look at not only just um, redu- reduction of, uh, of violence, but it seems like we have a violent society now. Uh, maybe we always have, it just has been hidden. Um, but the idea of also recognizing signs and symptoms of students or others that, that want to create harm. Um, how does that, how do, when you take a look at this, what, where do you see the the data that you're getting and how it can be applied to prevention? Yeah, so so that's what's interesting. So we really <clears throat> didn't have a, a clear picture of the perpetrator um, prior to this data collection. So it's 50 years of school shooting data back to 1970. Uh, it comes to about 2,100 cases over that 50-year period. 
the majority of them are isolated incidents. There are things like a fight in the school that escalates into a shooting. It may be a single victim, it may be bystanders. Also things like accidents, um, domestic violence, illegal activity. And then within that, those 2000 cases, there are about 190, which are actually planned attacks at the school mm. where somebody is there to uh, kill or injure as many people as they can. And there's a commonality across all of those cases which really lends to prevention, which is that they were not spur of the moment um, incidents. It was something that somebody planned for weeks or months or even years. And during that planning process, they had a grievance and the school was connected to that grievance. They became more and more angry. They became more hostile, more violent. They have problems throughout their life. Uh, a lot of them are rooted in abuse, um, drugs and alcohol, other issues. But all of their problems become directed at the school or directed at groups of people at the school, teachers, administrators, certain types of students, or just any student. And they escalate on this pathway to violence um, where they start talking about specific plans. They almost always tell other people about their plans. And then eventually the act of violence is carried out. It's very similar to the findings in the 9-11 Commission report. And I think how it ties into the kind of broader principles of emergency management is in all of these incidents in Uvalde and the Buffalo um, grocery store shooting. What didn't happen is different jurisdictions and different people had pieces of the puzzle, but they didn't have any way to put them all together. And emergency managers have always had the role of taking all of these disparate pieces, emergency services, police, fire, public works, mass care, stitching all these different resources together into one common operating picture, into one common plan. That's really what's missing in violence prevention right now. Over and over, we see that lots of people have pieces that could stop the, the attack. What they don't have is a good system to collectively put that intelligence together. Yeah, I I was involved um, in responding to a, a mass shooting um, at a at a beauty salon in, in the jurisdiction I worked at, and 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 with that, um, he, he he's made the guy who who carried out the the, the murders um, made threats and and other things like this in the past. Um, and, and it's either gone to deaf ears or in a sense of saying like it wasn't reported to police necessarily um, or it was gone to the courts and they just sort of thought of him as being just somebody who was, who was you know, full of hot air for lack of a better term. Um, we see that. And that seems to be a pattern, right, across these things. Like the people say something, they go, oh, he's just, he's just saying words, right? That, that, that this, and I say he because 90% of them are he's maybe even 99%. I don't know what the data is on that, but um, you know, so the, Oh, they are just saying whatever, right. Just the, the words. Um, why, why do we tend to ignore that and not follow up or because like the, the Buffalo shooting, that guy was on the radar. Uh, the guy who was shooting um, just the other day. I mean, he was, or the last month in, in, in at the elementary school was on the radar. the, the Parkland shooter was on the radar. These people are not unknown quantities out there that just snap, right? I mean, it, there's there's a pattern with this. How do we how do we put that actionable step then um, from that? Yeah, there's there's a lot of research now into a concept called crisis intervention. So 
we have a lot of legal limitations at the federal and state level for what somebody can be arrested for before they've actually committed a crime. Just because somebody's talked about violence in kind of vague generalities or purchased some weapons or you know has a picture uh, you know, of their target, they haven't necessarily committed a crime. And if there is a crime, uh, terroristic threats is often charged. And that's something where somebody might go to, to jail for three years or get probation before judgment um, and be right back in the system. So there, there are not good legal frameworks for you know, punishing someone for a crime they haven't committed. And that's probably not getting to the underlying cause anyway, if there's some sort of you know, short-term punishment. It could actually escalate somebody's right, right, right. pathway to violence. Um, but this concept of crisis intervention um, can really be implemented by anyone. And it's basic training into understanding somebody who is going through that, that cycle of grievances and anger and um, not coping with uh, the interpersonal issues. Because what we found also in the mass shootings, most of these people uh, commit self-harm, are suicidal, or plan to die during their attack. Crisis intervention and the skills needed to kind of implement crisis intervention programs have existed in suicide prevention that's been successful across the country, you know, for 50 years. So first responders, teachers, um, you know, adding crisis intervention to, you know, your kind of host of, of trainings in the workplace, the same way that you take EEO or, you know, gender equity training each year, giving somebody a basic toolkit in noticing somebody who's having a serious problem. And the, the key with these programs is that it's not on you or me to solve that problem. It's on you or me to see it. Mm -hmm. We escalate it or we talk to that person if we feel comfortable doing so. But then you can escalate it to a professional um, who is then able to, to see you know, if there's a bigger you know, situation. And that can be done in a non-punitive way outside of the criminal justice system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the step right there is as outside of the criminal justice system, because then you're not, I mean, and it sounds it's one of these things that we, we can debate about, but it's what we have. Our system is, is you can't just arbitrarily start locking people up when, um, for no particular reason, when I say no particular reason that they haven't really committed a crime. Um, we know we still do have the constitution, um, that's uh, in, in play. Yeah. Crisis um, intervention is, is really a lot like mitigation yes. in emergency management. It's, it's making a small effort that people can do on their own without a lot of training. And that can potentially stop a major issue down the road. You know, having sandbags ready at your house so that you can put them out around your doors prior to flooding, you know, you're not a structural engineer. You're not going to be able to save your house if it's totally um, flooded out, but you're going to be able to keep that minor rainstorm from potentially becoming something worse. That's what the crisis intervention can do. I know this coworker is having a problem. Now I've been trained in how to recognize it and who to talk to and tell about it. And, and this is some stuff that we've done in the past. I mean, like if, if you remember the, the, the term going postal uh, was because postal workers, for whatever reason, for a period of time, um, were literally killing people at their workplace uh, due to the stress of the job. You know, so... Um, we have to do, I think we collectively have to do a better job of recognizing that threat and, and not doing it, like, like you said, in a punitive way, but in a way to help the individual go through that 
crisis that they're going through, whether it's a long-term crisis that they've been bullied. It seems to be a lot of them have been bullied. Um, it seems a lot of the shooters are, are already going through some sort of, um, they seem to be, a lot of them seem to be on, on, on psych, on psych drugs already, but they're just not going through the rest of the, the, the process. And I think sometimes that we as a society don't want to, uh, ostracize other, other, others, uh, by going, Oh, you know, uh, but I think sometimes it's okay to pull them out and have that conversation with them and remove them from that situation. Um, so they can get better. Uh, what's your take on that? And then after yeah, this, for, fortunately, there's a, there's a pretty loose connection between severe mental illness, um, and committing mass shootings, which <laughs> gives us even more reason for hope, um, uh, because somebody that has, uh, severe mental illness, that's something that takes years of professional help to address. Um, somebody who's in a period of crisis, uh, they are they are not mentally ill uh, as like the underlying cause. There are situations going on in their life. And if we can recognize that and then give them some sort of support um, and at that point, you know, counseling and other interventions, that can be an opportunity to take some of that uh, what's been described with crisis intervention is that you have a balloon and the balloon is just getting blown up and blown up and blown up. And that first uh, contact with somebody trained in crisis intervention is just taking a little bit of air out of the balloon and just taking a little more air until they can, uh, you know, get in touch with a professional. Right. And the Fortune 500 companies are doing this. It's mm. something that exists uh, because large companies know they need to protect their workforce Firing somebody is one of the worst things that can happen because that person can come right back to the workplace. Um, so if you have a, an employee that you're worried about at a large company, the best thing that you can do is figure out how to provide them with help. We haven't committed those same resources across the rest of society, across the school systems, um, and specifically this kind of age period for school shooters and mass um, public shooters is between about 15 and 24. And that can be a point where somebody may have dropped out of high school or dropped out of college. Uh, they may be bouncing around between jobs. They may not really have a um, strong family structure or, or strong peer group. So they get lost in that period. And we don't have good systems in society to, to identify and help um, people that are really at a point of crisis there. I was listening to, um, I forget his name now, it was from the Cato Institute, um, having a conversation similar to what we're having today. And he was discussing the, the fact that through the, his research, that he's seen that a lot of the school shooters that are happening today are copycatting uh, realistically what happened um, in Columbine. Um, and that he's read the manifestos of the people that have written them, um, and that they're really... And I don't say cut and paste, but they're very similar to the stuff that was written back uh, during Columbine. Um, are we sensationalizing these shootings in a sense? And is that actually causing um, people, others, to, to get the, uh, the idea of doing it and, and, and copycatting? Or is that was that information or was his ideas kind of off base? It's difficult to tell. Uh, looking at the 50-year history of school shootings, there are incidents very similar to what we're seeing today, dating back to 1966. Mm. And just about every year from 1970 through now, there have been one to three planned rampage attacks at a school. So these were happening 30 years before Columbine, 
before any social media, before any R-rated movie, uh, before anybody even had a cell phone, uh, very similar things were happening. Um, so I think that that helps take away some of the, the kind of the, the simple circumstances to blame. Um, in, in terms of, of copycats, it's interesting. So in the early 90s, Stephen King wrote a book called Rage, mm. uh, which described a school shooting. It, the book was actually banned and burned um, because there were a number of school shootings in the early 90s and mid 90s that directly followed kind of the plot of rage. And the the people, you know, wrote and said that they were emulating this book. They followed it. They dressed in the same way. Um, and even prior to Columbine, um, there were a number of very similar incidents uh, that took place through the 90s that really uh, Columbine gets confused as a turning point because it really wasn't. It was never intended to be a school shooting. Um, it was intended to upstage the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm. So the day after the Oklahoma City bombing anniversary, uh, four years later, they had more than 100 explosive devices in the school. Fortunately, they didn't go off. Um, right. And when the devices didn't go off properly, then it turned into a shooting. Uh, but it was it was never intended to be that. And I think that it, it does a disservice to the, the broader scope of this multi-generational issue to think of Columbine as this turning point, because really it wasn't. It's a much deeper problem. Now, Columbine was a turning point in one aspect when it comes to training and tactics that law enforcement used. Um, and let's parallel that to what happened last month. Um, you know, prior to this, it was the surround, wait for the SWAT team to come in, and then the tactical team would go in and clear. That has changed. And we've actually changed the idea of what to do during an active shooter uh, to the point of first person on is going down range to find the bad guy to neutralize them. Um, you know, we've gone from staging law or fire to wait till law enforcement uh, secures the building to bringing rescue task force in uh, to doing treatment in the warm zone. It's not the hot zone necessarily, but in the warm zone for sure. Um, you know, casualty collection points, all these things that we're doing, right? Um, integrating law enforcement and fire and EMS. Um, into the into the advancement. What the hell happened in in Texas? Yeah, I, I think that that kind of speaks to the the role that emergency management um, can play at at the at the local level. Um, so, pretty much every jurisdiction practices a school shooting scenario, if not every year, every couple of years. There are SOPs, there are multi jurisdictional SOPs, um, but we know from major incidents that there are the same sorts of issues that continue to happen. There, there's loss of situational awareness. There are breakdowns in command and control. This wasn't just at Uvalde. Um, there was the same situation at Parkland where the initial officers there uh, took cover under their cars outside the parking lot rather than immediately engaging the shooter. I think it comes down to if we're seeing the same types of failures that are occurring over and over again, that has to be rooted in either a training or an SOP um, issue because you're having personnel in different parts of the country um, having very you know similar challenges. So as emergency managers and as the people who generally collect the AAR, um, write the AAR, understand the recommendations when there's a multi-jurisdictional incident, um, EM is usually the, the entity that is in charge of coordinating and understanding that incident. 
Um, and I think what we're not seeing is lessons learned and shortfalls, either from training or from real incidents, be captured and then be followed up on. I think that that's the missing piece. If you talk to any officer at Uvalde, they probably knew there were problems with radios, that not everybody knew where the keys were, that not everybody was familiar with the layout of the school. If you talk to an individual officer, they probably would have said that. If you'd run a training scenario there, um, which they did a couple of weeks prior to this, there were probably issues during that training scenario. What was lacking is somebody to be accountable for those issues and to be responsible for correcting them. So there's two things I want to talk about the ARs, um, and I think they're critical. One is, is when we're doing the hot wash or the after action um, board work, I have a friend of mine who hates using the term hot, hot wash, right? <laughs> but the idea, so we're sitting in the room, putting the things on the whiteboard, you know, and like, I, I hate to say this, but a lot of times, um, and this for training too, you, you know, we get these things that they put into the, into the after action report that are really don't really inc- help move things forward. Stuff like, hey, you know, uh, it was too cold or it was too hot or uh, we wish we had better coffee or the donut sucked or whatever. Things like that that get, it, that get into the after action reports. Um, you, you know, then let's de- take those things out. So we're looking at things that really make a difference. And on training, this is the thing that kills me, is that we slap each other on the back, say what a great job we did. We don't want to embarrass anybody that, because again, we're not training, we're not, in my mind at least, we're not testing the individual, we're testing the system. So we really, no one should be embarrassed to think this goes sideways because it's that means that we failed as a system, not the individual. But we don't want to do that. Um, and then we write these benign after-action reports that say crap like we need more, you know, donuts. Um, what can we do to, to really fix that after-action report system? And then we'll talk about real-world stuff here in a second. Yeah, I, I mean, that really comes down to the individual jurisdiction and having people that are in charge in that jurisdiction decide that they really want to be champions for change and they want to implement meaningful um, recommendations in their jurisdiction. So if, if you have a training and you, you set, you know, five objectives and usually you have some high level strategic objectives, and then you have some tactical things that uh, operational personnel might be working through really evaluating those seeing where they break and making sure that it's a scenario that is pushing people to the intensity that you would have um, in a real world, world emergency. I think that's where things can break down. If, if a training scenario has always been, you know, a very simple piece and everything's very rehearsed ahead of time, then when people get into a situation like Uvalde, they are experiencing the, the highest intensity scenario they've ever been in for the first time when lives are on the line. Yeah. So it's probably better to push somebody harder in training where it's an environment where people are not going to get hurt, where there are not going to be life altering and life ending consequences. Um, And then really taking a, an honest assessment at the after action and not have the after action be something where we can check off these items a couple of weeks from now, but happy after action say this piece didn't work. It needs to be retrained. This policy needs to be rewritten. And I understand it's very hard with resource constraints, with time constraints, doing a full scale exercise uh, in a jurisdiction is a major effort. Um, but if those things aren't happening, 
you can't expect somebody to go into the hallway at Uvalde and operate correctly if they've never been in anything that simulates that environment before. Eric Franco from High Speed Tech Med, I just interviewed him the other day, and uh, he's a former deputy with uh, LA County Sheriff's Department. Um, he might actually be reserved now, but anyway, um, he he uh, trains um, on the active shooter stuff a lot, and he's he's tra- he's the guy who's training fire and police, right? Um, and he brings them to the point of failure, right? Like walking through that scenario where people, because of lack of of action or whatever. Uh, you know, people die in training. Um, and, and he so he says he does this within this 10 minute constraint of time and pressure to make the person who's going to the training to feel that pressure of, of this. And he says he brings them to failure on purpose and, and then brings them to success. So they understand what that is. Um, and I think that's that's critical. We need to take that when we look at what we're doing as emergency managers, when we're doing exercise and design is allowing failure to occur during training in our, in our EOC, in the full scale exercise, if we have one, or at least in and let administration understand that these are the areas that need to be fixed. And I think we do a really poor job of, of allowing failure to occur. Why are we afraid of that, David? Well, with, with a full scale exercise, I mean, think of the time and resources required to put that on you know you have multiple planning meetings in the weeks ahead you have people on overtime you have equipment you have volunteers so say there's a full-scale exercise for a school shooting in your jurisdiction that you're running as the local emergency manager you're going to want to test as many different pieces uh, as possible during that exercise so there may be a tactical evolution and then from there um, you're going to have unified command established, and then a rescue task force, um, and then a triage situation and triage, um, you know, then on to the hospital, uh, some sort of family reunification system, maybe a, a feeding and temporary sheltering and evacuation um, of other students from the school. So you have all these different pieces going on. But in that six hour scenario, that means that one officer got to practice going through the door of the school once. Mm -hmm. And that was just a small piece of that larger scenario. Did that prepare the other 900 officers on the force for that? You know, I I think that that's that's the piece we need to see. Um, Not making things too complex, not making things too big. When you have that many people together, you feel like you need to test every single part of your plan But in that effort to test every part of the plan, are you ignoring the details within some of the most critical components? I think that that's something that needs a lot more attention. So it becomes like the Swiss Army knife. It has a lot of different components and none of them work really well. (laughs) Yeah, or or nine of the 10 might work really well, but if that first officer through the door doesn't really understand their role and their procedures, then having every other piece operate correctly doesn't seem to. You know, in Uvalde, they they had buses ready. They had an alternate um, location already designated. They were sending out automated um, social media and text messages. All of the pieces were there for the response to go really effectively. It could have been over in three minutes. It would have been a tragic situation, but then everything else would have fallen into line. When there was one failure at the start, 
everything else uh, then fell apart after it. When it comes to active shooter situations, do we have a failure to imagine the worst case scenario and that's why we don't train to it? Yeah. It, well, what's interesting, so six weeks before Uvalde in Washington, D.C. at the Edmund Burke School in Northwest, there was an absolute worst case scenario. So dismissal on Friday, there was a shooter with a thousand rounds of ammo and six automatic rifles in a fifth story apartment overlooking the school. And he started firing right before dismissal. Um, fortunately, he had terrible aim. He didn't know how to operate the automatic weapons at all. He fired 230 shots in two minutes, just spraying bullets all over the place, wounded four people. That is a worst case scenario. Fortunately, it was in Washington, D.C., in Upper Northwest, where you had MPD officers that have done tons of multi-jurisdictional large event training. You have the Secret Service, you have Diplomatic Protective Service, you have a hundred other agencies, and there just happened to be a Secret Service um, counter-sniper team right in the area that was quickly able to identify what was happening. The first MPD officer was able to assess the situation, realize there was an overhead shooter, tell the school not to follow their regular procedures because people needed to be on the opposite side of the building, away from exposed windows, not just locked down in a classroom. So there was a, a jurisdiction that puts a ton of resources into planning and has an opportunity to really exercise those plans because they have so many events and they're moving diplomats around the city you know, every day. So you had a worst case scenario occur there and they responded pretty effectively to it. That same scenario could play out in any city in the country. Mm. And I don't know if every other department is prepared for something like that. You know, the Las Vegas Harvest Festival shooting almost happened at a school. Right. Fortunately, it didn't. But yeah, we really have to plan to the worst case scenarios um, because they're out there. Absolutely. Yeah, we're coming to close to the end here. And I just kind of just kind of want to let you have the last word. Um What's the solution? There, there's not a single solution for this. Um, it's going to come from a lot of pieces. And I really wanted to, to touch on today, emergency management is left out of the active shooter discussion in a lot of ways. We say that's a police thing first. It's a fire EMS thing second. Most of the incidents are short duration. Um, but with Uvalde, you know, within minutes, something goes from being a isolated incident into now a multi-week response um, that's gonna end with the school being demolished and rebuilt. Um, so the long-term recovery there is gonna you know, extend into years at this point. Emergency managers have so much that they can offer to these large incidents response, you know, large incident responses. There's interoperable comms, there's planning, um, Feeding and sheltering, how many people think about how you're going to feed hundreds of responders and parents and students that are sheltered waiting to be interviewed for an incident that might stretch for 12, 18 hours? Um, family reunification is critical. Um, you saw the, the parents outside in Uvalde. If they don't know what's going on with their kids, if they don't know if their kids are safe, that was an absolute disaster scenario. Most are over quickly, but parents need to know how they're going to get their kids, where they're going to get their kids, 
or else you can have a situation that spirals out of control. There's logistics, there's donations, there's public messaging. And then a, a huge part of this that we're just seeing now is records management. Mm. Having somebody who's there paying attention to who got there at what time, what they did, what resources were used, where they were deployed. Um, those are all things that emergency managers have learned as this discipline has matured. And they're all things that get forgotten on a lot of these, these big mass shooting and active shooting responses. And I think that the role of the emergency managers really need to insert ourselves into these operational structures, into these exercises, and show public safety all the resources that we can provide. Absolutely. David, you know, it's a tough conversation. It's one that we need to have more. Um, I do appreciate all the work that you're doing um, in this field, and I uh, appreciate you being on the show today. No problem. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to David. His contact information is down um, in the show notes, and you can always find his great work he's doing um, on LinkedIn. Until next week, everybody, I would like you all to stay safe and stay hydrated. <laughs>